For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. My wife and I recently welcomed our first child into the family, so I am currently on paternity leave. My primary priority right now is to spend time with the newest member of our family and take care of my wife. Therefore, today's episode will be short and focused, and just like I've been doing over the last month or so, I have a few episodes like this where my goal is to impart investing knowledge in five minutes or less. This episode is going to be slightly longer as I have a few questions that I have received from Twitter that I want to answer for you today. So I'm going to be answering multiple questions and I've received these through Twitter. If you want to be able to ask me a question, consider following me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Trey Henniger or at Trey Henniger on Twitter. Those links are in the show notes. So let's dive right on in. So, I have three questions to answer today. We will begin with a question from the Individual Investor's Edge. Question is, what is the point in studying investing? Any edge in so-called value investing can be advertised to only be seen over a full market cycle. It just justifies underperformance for years on end. So, why study investing? I think this is a good question for us to consider. The whole point of this podcast is to provide information, knowledge, insight to help you become a better investor. So clearly this question gets to the heart of why even listen to a podcast like this? What is the value that you're seeking to get? And I certainly can't answer what you specifically are hoping to get out of it, but I can answer why I study investing, why I think studying investing can be valuable. For me, it comes down to a very simple answer. I study investing because if I didn't understand what my investments were doing, if I weren't buying individual stocks, it would be harder for me to sleep at night than if I put my money into an index fund. To me, as a value investor, simply buying an index fund is very, very risky. I don't like that the portfolio is extremely diversified. I don't like that I don't understand what I own. And I don't like in current days why, when basically by buying an index, I'm going to be putting about 20% of my portfolio in high-flying tech stocks who has high prices on those stocks and very little earnings. So if I had 100% of my portfolio or 50% of my portfolio or even 10% of my portfolio in index funds... I would not be able to sleep at night comfortably because the risk and would keep me up at night. So I study investing because I want the ability to understand what I own and to understand all the risks involved in the companies that I own. And for me, that means the way that I reduce risk is by buying individual companies. For me, buying individual companies and building my own portfolio is lower risk than buying an index fund. Now, this is not the common answer that you're likely to receive from mainstream financial writers, investing writers, 
But for me, that's really what it is. I want to understand everything I own, all the risks and all the opportunities. And I want to build a portfolio that fits me and that fits my risk profile. I think this is a reasonable answer and it's one that doesn't really fit maybe the stance that you are approaching in this question, really talking about, well, what about what's the edge that value investing has and that you're really talking about you know, outperforming over a full market cycle. And one of the ways that I think about this differently from the mainstream is that I'm not trying to beat the S&P 500. I'm not a relative investor. So I don't analyze my performance relative to the S&P 500 on any individual year because my goal is not based upon a relative metric. The problem for me with comparing myself relatively to the S&P 500 is that if the S&P 500 per earns 4% in a year, it should be relatively easy to beat that performance metric. And so simply because I beat the S&P 500 during a bad year doesn't make me feel good because I might have gotten 6% instead of 4%, but 6% still doesn't help me achieve my goals. Likewise, if the S&P 500 earns 20% in a year, even if I don't beat the S&P 500 in that year and I earn like 15%, that's still a highly successful year. What I seek to do is be an absolute return investor, which means that I'm targeting a specific rate of return on an annualized basis for my portfolio. I want to earn 10% a year each year in my portfolio, and I'd like that to be as stable as possible. Now, obviously, that's very difficult to control, but what I can control is the types of companies that I buy for my portfolio, the number of companies I buy for my portfolio, and how I weight those companies accordingly. And so by focusing on a small number of stocks that I can have high conviction in, I can build a portfolio that's designed to achieve a target rate of return. And if that beats the S&P 500, great. If it underperforms the S&P 500, that's fine too, as long as I'm achieving the target rate of return that I've chosen. And I select a 10% annual return. It matches the historic rate of return of the S&P 500. And I think in the future, the S&P 500 is going to have a lower return than it has in the past. So by targeting 10%, it's likely that if I achieve that that 10% profile, that I am going to beat the S&P 500 over the long term, but that's not the inherent goal. I don't care if other investors are earning more than I am. All I care about is achieving my target rate of return, and if I do that, then I can achieve my personal finance goals. All of that's to say that there's one final benefit for studying investing, and I find it fun. I find it interesting. I find it cool to learn about businesses, spend my time reading about companies, how the world works, how economics works. And if you think it's interesting and fun, I think that's an inherent advantage over those that don't. So fortunately, it's a hobby that allows me to earn money and earn a substantial return on my capital. But if not, it's just an advantage over what other people might have as other hobbies. So for me, it's just something I'm interested in, but it has some inherent advantages. So that's my answer to that question. The second question is from Jared on Twitter. And the question is, quote, a little late, but I'd be interested 
in hearing some thoughts on the pros and cons of managing a value portfolio of stocks in a Roth IRA versus a taxable account with quarterly rebalancing. Do the non-taxable gains in a Roth outweigh the benefits of claiming losses in a taxable account? So the basic question here is, is what are the trade-offs between Roth IRAs and taxable accounts when you take into account rebalancing and the ability to claim losses on your tax returns? So for me, I think it's important to realize that my personal actions here aren't going to match necessarily what everyone else is because I don't believe in rebalancing. I recently did an episode on how rebalancing kills compounding. And because of that, I think I've highlighted the struggles that rebalancing can cause in your portfolio. But if you are implementing rebalancing, then of course, one of the key benefits of operating that inside a Roth IRA is that when you sell gains, you don't have to pay taxes on those gains in order to rebalance. And typically, when rebalancing, you're selling a stock or a bond or something along those lines that has gone up in price in order to buy one that has gone down in price. Therefore, rebalancing, especially on a quarterly basis or even on an annual basis, is going to involve recognizing gains. If done in a taxable account, that is a negative. But if done in a Roth IRA, there is no tax consequence for implementing rebalancing. However, the question then comes, so should those non-taxable gains in the Roth outweigh the benefits of claiming losses in a taxable account? Well, Certainly, claiming losses in a taxable account can be valuable. If you, The value of that is simply by taking that loss amount, you can offset whatever your tax rate is times that amount. So if you were to lose $1,000 and you're in the 20% tax bracket, that would be worth $200 for every $1,000 of losses that you recognize. Unfortunately, with your strategy, you should be trying to avoid taxable losses. And so you should try be trying to always avoid your losses because that means that you're losing money. In other words, if I have to choose between a strategy that allows me to benefit from losses and a strategy that allows me to benefit from gains, I'm going to choose the strategy that allows me to benefit from gains. In part, because by putting my money into that Roth IRA and focusing on the strategy that has higher benefits when I gain money, there's two key benefits here. The first is that the stock market over time, especially over the long term, tends to go up. Businesses make money and they return that money to shareholders. Therefore, your base rate for an investment, especially one that you've researched, that you've done the fundamental analysis on, that you bought with a margin of safety, should be a gain. Your base expectation when you're buying stocks that are priced appropriately and performing well should be that you're going to have a gain. Therefore, it's nice to align your strategy accordingly to reduce taxes during gains instead of maximizing for losses. And the second piece is my particular portfolio allocation strategy is to focus on concentrated positions in high conviction ideas. And that word high conviction is the critical piece. If it's a high conviction idea, the odds of losing money should be incredibly low. This is quite different from a diversified portfolio that's focused on low conviction ideas, but with high expected value. In a low conviction portfolio, you might have 40% of your stocks end up being losers, 60% being winners, and those offset to help you in the long run. 
my portfolio, I'm seeking a 90% to a 95% success ratio when I invest in my stocks, which means that a vast majority of my investment gains or losses are going to end up as gains, and I'm going to vastly minimize my losses. Therefore, for a concentrated high conviction portfolio, I vastly prefer tax-protected accounts like a Roth IRA over a taxable account. Hope that answers the question. Obviously, you should address it according to your own strategy because everyone's strategy is unique. So let's now dive into the third and final question that I'm going to answer today. And the question comes from Stock Speaking. This is again from Twitter. The question is, how do you react when your family, friends, or wife ask you advice about stocks if they do? What if they ask you to manage their stock picks, and do you share your portfolio absolute value and absolute win or losses with them and why? So the first and easiest part about this is that I don't share absolute portfolio wins and losses. I don't share absolute values, and by here I'm talking about dollar values with anyone. And the key point is, is it's just a simple privacy matter. Simply having this podcast and having the DIYinvesting.org blog puts myself out there and it puts my portfolio and my actions public in a way that for most people isn't relevant. With that said, it's highly important for me to keep my personal finances private to the degree possible. And for me, the balance becomes I report percentage gains and losses, and I like to discuss those postmortems here on the podcast, and you'll be seeing more of those this year. And by focusing on percentage gains and losses, people then can compare it to their portfolio. Because a 10% gain in a $10,000 portfolio and a 10% gain in a $100,000 portfolio and a 10% gain in a million-dollar portfolio are all the same when you think about the actual moves, purchases, and bought and sells of individual companies. It's something that people can compare across all their portfolio. But if I were to say I had a $1,000 gain, that could be a huge gain for some people or a small gain for other people. So it's very important to focus on percentages when you're talking about stocks in general, because it's actually sharing useful information, but also it protects the privacy of your portfolio and what amounts you are managing. So the next piece here is, you know, how do I react when my family, friends, or wife ask advice about the stocks I have? So first it's, you know, my wife and I share finances, so I tend to manage the entire family portfolio in that sense. So there's not really, um, any concern there from like, well, do I tell her what I, it's, it's all integrated. Um, but like other family members and other friends. So when people ask advice about stocks, my goal is not to share individual picks that I think they should buy because I'm not trying to influence them to buy one stock or another. Because generally when people are asking for that advice, it's not going to do them any good. If you give them advice to buy something and it goes great, a lot of times you're not going to get seen as giving that benefit to them. However, the trade-off works really bad if you give an advice for a stock and it does poorly. Even though your family and friends should be 100% responsible for the investments they make, if you give them an idea to buy something and it goes down in price, they're going to blame you even though they were responsible for that investing decision. So it's important to realize that by telling people investment ideas, encouraging them to buy certain stocks, it generally only has downside. Um, so the baseline recommendation is don't recommend stocks to people. Don't give them advice about what they should buy or sell. 
if they're asking for general advice, you know, general investing advice, um, one idea is you could recommend them to this podcast. My little self-promotion here, you could tell them to listen to the information that you listen to and then they can make up their own mind about how to manage that information for themselves. I think that's a useful way of managing this sort of trade-off and then they can make up their own mind. If they ask you to manage stocks, important to realize that again, this has the exact same trade-offs. Typically, if you're gonna do well, it's not going to be as appreciated if you do badly. People have risk aversion. So if you're managing of their portfolio lends to losses, it's going to be vastly exasperated. And there's a level of responsibility that you take on when you do that. Especially if you think in terms of like family or friends, this can alienate relationships if you were to happen to lose them money. Is that something that people do? Yes. Um, it's quite common when you see portfolio managers, even people like Buffett, they get started by investing family and friends money. It can be an avenue into the business. But if you're not thinking about getting into the investment management business, it's probably not something for you to do. Um, Because all it's going to do is it leads to this situation. And money is so sensitive in relationships that unless you're thinking of going into this business, I would tend to avoid it. Um, because it can strain relationships if it's not managed well. So I hope that's helpful. I hope that gives you some ideas to think about. Um, again, the purpose of this show is just to give you a little bit of information, help you to start thinking, and give you ideas that can help you with your own investing journey. If you'd like to ask questions of me, you can always do so through email. My email is available on the website. Alternatively, you can sign up on Twitter, follow me at Trey Henniger. The link is in the show notes and send me your questions. I'd be happy to answer them on the podcast in a future show. One call of action for you today. It again, it is my hope that taking some paternity leave for my new baby won't threaten the success of this podcast. So how can you help me during this time? If you've subscribed to the podcast and have been enjoying my content, please consider giving me a five-star rating and review. I need many more ratings and reviews than I have currently received if the podcast audience is to grow. Right now, I only have about 1% to 2% of my podcast audience having left a rating and review. And if you're in that 2%, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And if you're in part of the 98%, just please consider taking just 30 seconds of your day and leave me a five-star review in your podcast app. I would really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.